Well, good morning, church. I invite you to turn along with me one last time to the book of 2 Peter as we wrap up our time in Peter's letter together. 2 Peter chapter 3. We're reading just the last four verses of the book this morning. So 3, starting at verse 14. The Apostle Peter writes, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So I don't know how many of you were complete nerds in school like I was, um, but did anybody else here actually like really enjoy writing papers? Yeah, that's, that first service had the very much the same reaction, just a lot of shaking heads. That probably explains a little bit of how I ended up where I did. Um, but you probably had to write them. And if you remember, uh, good papers, we are taught, have to have three parts to them, right? They have to have an introduction, and then a body, and then a conclusion. And I remember being taught, very helpfully, that, that in the introduction, you should tell your readers what you're going to tell them, and then in the body, you should tell them, and then in the conclusion, you should tell them what you told them. And so as we conclude Second Peter today, we're going to see that while Peter didn't necessarily follow modern writing conventions for his introduction, I actually think that he did, kind of, do what we are taught to do with his conclusion. I think what we're going to see this morning is Peter telling us shortened and in reverse everything else that he has already told us in this letter. And so with that, we're going to see him talk about three different things this morning. So the first of those is that we need to live in light of the future. I think that that corresponds to chapter three that we heard yes, or yesterday, last week, um, where he talked about the coming day of the Lord, Christ's second coming. And then in the following verses, he's going to talk this morning about how we need to carefully interpret the scriptures which I think is corresponding to chapter 2 and his warnings about false teachers. And then finally, in his last words of the letter, he calls us as Christians to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, which I think is essentially just him saying everything that he said in chapter 1 in about a sentence instead of a few paragraphs. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning, and we will start with his call to live in light of the future. This is from verse 14 through the first half of 16. He writes, Therefore, beloved... Since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. So, as I always do, we see the word therefore, we need to look back. What is he talking about? What is he trying to ground these coming commandments in? And so what he wants us to look at is everything he talked about at the, the beginning of chapter 3. He wants us to ground these commandments in the reality of Christ's second coming. So, so depending on the translation you have, the, the way that this phrase gets rendered might be a little different. 
Um, I know a few say something about like looking forward to these things or the NIV, which many of you have, says looking forward to this. The ESV that I'm preaching from renders it super literally. So he says, since you are waiting for these, just like an unqualified word, these. So he's linking us back to verse 13. So in 13, he writes, but according to Christ's promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And then if we continue that thought, so since you are waiting for these, since we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth, since we are looking forward to a time when the Lord will purify and remake all of creation and his people dwell with him in perfect righteousness, as we wait for these things, let now these traits that he's going to bring up be true of you. If you remember back all the way to when we started this series, we said that the main point of the entire book of 2 Peter is that right faith necessarily leads to right practice. And so after Peter has assured these Christians that Christ will in fact return, he's now telling them how that right faith ought to shape their lives, how that right faith should shape their right practice. And there's four things that Peter wants us to be as we wait for these promises to be fulfilled. And so the first of these is diligent. So not actually a specific trait. Rather, this is an overarching attitude and intentionality in the first trait that he will give. But it's worth talking about for just a minute. Because we can maybe understand, if we think about it for a minute, how the reality of the second coming might actually produce the opposite, how it might make us lazy. Right? We, we could see someone saying, well, if Jesus could come back tomorrow, then there's really no point in being intentional today. There's no need to develop good spiritual habits. There's no need to battle specific sins or to love my neighbors because for all I know, Jesus is going to come back tomorrow and eh, I, I wasted today. But Peter is saying that, that that is the exact opposite of the attitude the second coming should stir up in us. As we worked through chapter two, I pointed out that, that Peter very clearly was a disciple of Jesus. He just oozes Jesus' teaching back into this letter and we see that again here. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus, talking about his second coming, says this, Matthew chapter 24, 45 through 51. He says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Peter is really echoing the teaching of Jesus, which shouldn't surprise us. He's calling us to be diligent so that when our master returns, he finds us busy doing what he has told us to do. But Peter has a very specific thing in mind here. He has in mind that we would be diligent to pursue per personal holiness, that we'd be diligent to be without spot or blemish. Or, to, to simplify that, to be diligent to be found by Christ when he returns as perfect. And again, he is echoing the teaching of Jesus. Matthew 5, 48, Jesus says, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And at the same time, as recalling Jesus' teaching, he's also contrasting how he described the false teachers in this church in chapter 2. He called them blots and blemishes on the church. And now he actually uses those exact same two Greek words, 
it just sticks the little a suffix. We, we know how that works. You put a in front of something, it means not that. So the false teachers are our blots and blemishes, but Christians want to be found. They ought to be diligent to be found without blot or blemish. We shouldn't be like the false teachers. So Peter is saying that the future reality of Christ's second coming should cause us to strive to be perfectly free of any sin. Now, I, I do need to contrast this a little bit here. I am not talking about perfectionism, right? Peter is not saying that we need to like get down on ourselves and destroy ourselves if like our cookie recipe doesn't turn out right, or we don't get 100% on a paper. He, he's talking about moral perfection. That's what he has in mind here, a life free of sin. Um, in, in regards to this idea, I was asked a really good question by someone from New Life a while ago. Uh, I haven't actually answered it yet, so if they're here today, they're going to hear my answer now, which is good. Uh, the question, and it really, uh, it's a really good question, is how does the call for us to be perfect fit with the reality of God's grace? How does the call for us to be perfect fit with the reality of God's grace? And my answer, in short, and then and we'll expand on this a bit, is that God's demand for our perfection is what makes God's grace great. Or to put it another way, if God didn't demand perfection, his grace would be far, far less. So, so to really figure this out, we have to think deeply about the message of the gospel, the message of God's grace. So I've, I've talked about this a little bit in a sermon before. For those of you who took my gospel fluency class a while ago, you've seen this. Uh, when I think about presenting the gospel, I think about these four categories, God, man, Christ, and response. And so it, it works something like this. Um, you know, we believe that God created the universe. He, he created the world and everything in it, and he, he created humans to be in relationship with him. God is loving and merciful, but he is also holy and just. Because he is holy, he cannot, uh, he cannot just wink at sin. He can't ignore it. And because he's just, it must be punished. Because we all believe, ultimately, that people who do wrong things, there should be justice. But mankind, we are rebels. We, we have heard of God's righteous rules and we reject them. And we, we actively pursue what we want. We pursue our glory. We pursue our desires instead of what God has called us to. And by doing that, we break our relationship with God. But God in his grace sent Jesus Christ to live the life of perfect obedience that we should have lived and to die the death that we deserve to die and ultimately to rise from the dead to prove that he had defeated death so that by faith in Jesus Christ and not in our own good works, we can be saved. We can be made right with God. So that is, in short, the message of the gospel. But if God did not demand perfection from us, if he was just okay with us trying our hardest or, or trying to like make the scales balance out that our, our good outweighs our bad, it would do extreme damage to every single one of those four categories. So if God does not demand perfection, God is no longer holy and he's no longer just because we all, everybody here, whether you're a Christian or not, you believe that if there is a God, he should punish sin. None of us think that, that Adolf Hitler should get off free after what he did. We all love God's justice until it comes to our own sin. And that's where we want to draw the line. We, we don't want him to punish ours. But if he is just, it all has to be punished. That's how justice works. And we, we have to understand, too, that God does not just display his attributes he actually is them, by which I mean God doesn't just simply act justly. God is just. 
He can't just choose to show some of his attributes here and some of them there. At all times, God must be consistent with his character. So he must be loving and holy and just and merciful and gracious all at the same time. He can't just turn these things off. Then he wouldn't be God. So if he doesn't demand perfection, his character ruined. If he doesn't demand perfection, well, then everything the Bible teaches us about mankind is just untrue. Because the Bible teaches us that we're enslaved to sin and separated from God. But, but if the, the bar isn't perfection, then it's not true anymore. It's actually just that we're not quite good enough. We, we just haven't done enough. We just haven't gotten close enough. And we might actually be able to. If God doesn't demand perfection, then Christ's work is utterly unnecessary. I'm going to expand on that a little more. So we'll just skip over that for a second and talk about our response. If God doesn't demand perfection, we don't need to have faith. Because if perfection isn't the bar, we can actually earn our salvation. We just have to try hard enough. We just have to be good enough. We just have to sin less and and do more good. And really, we might as well throw out our Bibles because the gospel is gone. Christianity crumbles if that is true. But let's talk more specifically about the Bible's call for us to be morally perfect in its relation to the work of Christ. Because here's something that we as Christians really need to come to terms with. We are in fact, saved by good works, but not our own. We as Christians are saved by the good works of Jesus Christ. And, sorry, Dave. <laughs> and maybe one of the most important verses in all of scripture for understanding how we are saved, 2 Corinthians 5.21, this is the way that Paul says it. He says, For our sake God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Theologians have called this the great exchange. Christ takes all of our sin, and in exchange, he gives us all of his obedience. His perfect obedience is credited to us. Our sin to him, his perfection to us, and by his good works, God understands them as ours. We are saved by good works, but they are the good works of another. So how do God's call to perfection and the gospel work together? The answer is that they magnify each other. We see that to come near to God requires perfection. But God in his infinite grace has made a way for horribly imperfect people to draw near. And it's by faith. It's by the righteousness and the perfect works of Jesus Christ being reckoned as our own. And some of you here today, you need to hear that because you're still trying to earn your own salvation. You're still trying to rely on your own good works, but the bar is perfection. And so if you think your good works are gonna get you into heaven, it's just not true. They can't. God demands absolute perfection, and the only way in which you can receive that is by admitting that you don't have it and fleeing to Jesus Christ to receive his by faith, not by anything you have done, but simply by faith in him. Now, before we move on, I want to look at this from a slightly different angle, too. I've heard it said, I think rightly, that the job of a preacher is to comfort the troubled and to trouble the comfortable. And this call to perfection is a beautiful opportunity to do both of those things. Because there's going to be two wrong reactions that people are going to tend towards with this call to perfection. Some of you are going to go straight to self-condemnation, This is going to hit you like a ton of bricks and you're just going to dwell on your own sin and you're going to completely destroy yourself realizing that you don't measure up. 
So first, there's actually something to commend in that. It is good to hate your sin. It is a good thing to feel the weight of your sin. But if what that drives you to is self-condemnation and not to Jesus Christ, you're dwelling on your sin in the wrong way. So to the troubled, this call to perfection brings the comfort that Christ has already achieved the perfection that you need. And so you can rest in him as you continue to battle that sin. Others will hear this and either be unable to immediately identify sin in their life. They hear this and they go, oh, yeah, no, I'm there. I've, I've got this. Or worse, they can identify it, but they are just choosing not to battle it. They see the sin. They know it's sin. They know God's word says they shouldn't do it, and they just don't care. If you're that person this morning, the call to perfection needs to wake you up. God has called you, Christian, to moral perfection. No amount of sin is acceptable in the life of a Christian. Not little ones, none. That is the call. All sin must be put to death. Remember in chapter 1, Peter said that we confirm our calling and election by growing in Christian character, by, by growing in holiness. So to the comfortable, this call to perfection should trouble them. It should show them the need to recognize and battle sin and should cause them to truly examine themselves and see if their life accords with what Scripture calls them to. So that's the first thing that a right belief in Christ's second coming will bring. It's a diligence in pursuing personal holiness. Second thing that Peter says is that we should be at peace, by which I think he means resting confidently in a right relationship with God, at peace with God. But it's not that simple because from peace with God flows a whole lot of other peace in the life of a Christian, right? From peace with God flows peace with others. The Bible says that we are to forgive as God in Christ has forgiven us. And so as we understand the, the gap between our holiness and God's, and as we see the amount he has forgiven, he says, forgive others in the same way, which means we'll pursue peace with one another. We, we will, as Christians, actually try to assume the best of one another. We'll, we'll really try to forgive. The, the book of Proverbs actually says that it's, it is a person's glory to overlook an offense, to just freely forgive people, to pursue peace with one another. It'll also bring, as we've kind of mentioned already, a, a really solid internal peace because we're not resting in ourselves. We're, we're not fearing the second coming, wondering that Jesus might come and look at you and go, do you know what? I just don't like you very much and, and just send you to hell anyways. Because we, we rest in Christ's completed work. We, we don't need to be anxious about earning God's approval because we have earned it in Jesus Christ. It also gives us peace in the face of a shifting culture. Has anyone here ever rewatched a movie after you'd seen it already to watch it with friends? The, the twists and the turns in the movie don't really mean as much, hey? Like, you know, you, you know how the story ends. You know where it's going. Well, this is the beautiful thing, is that we as Christians, we know how the story ends. We know where all of this is going. It isn't in doubt that the end is sure. And so even in the chaos of the world, as nations rise and fall, as, as disease and natural disasters break out, as sin runs rampant, and as we as Christians are becoming more and more aware of a culture that delights in sin, we know, we are certain that Christ is coming back. And when he comes, there's not a Russian tank that's going to stop him. There's not a global pandemic that's going to stop him. There's not a world government that can hold him back. When he rends the heavens and comes down, he's coming. 
And he's going to come precisely when he wants to. And so we can be at peace because Jesus Christ has already won. Our king is already sitting on his throne in heaven. And Ephesians 2 says we are already there with him. We are that secure. We are seated with him in heaven. He is already enthroned as king of the universe, and we are just waiting for him to return and finalize it, totalize it, and, and remake a new heavens, a new earth, where we will dwell in perfect righteousness forever. But even now, as we wait for that day, Peter wants us to think about that delay in a specific way. He wants us to rightly understand the Lord's patience. You know, it's a good thing to desire Christ's second coming. Like, we, we should want to see Jesus. We should want to be with Jesus. But we must understand in the waiting that God's patience is bringing about salvation. Howard literally preached this last week, but somehow, for the first time in my life this week, as I was studying this passage to preach, this hit me. Every day that God waits is a day that more people repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ. Every single day. And we can be sure that Christ is not going to return until the full measure of his people have been brought in. He, he's not losing anybody. He, he will wait exactly as long as he intends to, and he will come exactly when he wants. His people will certainly be saved. And so we ought not complain or grumble in the waiting, but rather celebrate the Lord's patience that results in more people being brought into his eternal kingdom. And this is not in the text, but I'll just add, let's, let's pray for that while we're waiting. Let's pray that the Lord would be drawing people to himself, that, that he would be using each one of us as his tools to bring about the salvation of his people, that he would bring more people home to himself. So then Peter also wants us, in his final words here, to carefully interpret the scriptures. So starting halfway through verse 16, speaking of Paul's letters, he says, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. I love this. Peter the Apostle, admitting, thank God, that Paul's words are hard to understand, to which anybody who has ever read them says, Amen. Thank you, Peter, for giving me some hope that it's actually just hard. I'm not dumb. It's good. All jokes aside, we need to be clear on one thing, uh, as Christians really always have been. While not all scripture is easy to understand, we freely admit that, all that we need in order to be saved is. Uh, in the late 1600s, a group of Baptists gathered in the city of London to develop a shared confession of faith. And they worded this reality in this way. I think it's beautiful. They wrote, Some things in Scripture are clearer than others, and some people understand the teachings more clearly than others. However, the things that must be known, believed, and obeyed for salvation are so clearly set forth and explained in one part of Scripture or another that both the educated and the uneducated may achieve a sufficient understanding of them by properly, properly using ordinary measures. In other words, you don't really have to be able to read a whole lot of big words. You don't need to be able to think particularly deeply to, to hear and understand the message of the gospel. It is clearly laid out in scripture to be read or to be heard by someone who is preaching it. 
So we believe that scripture is not as clear on some things, but it is absolutely clear on things of vital importance, like how a person can be saved. Peter's words also establish here a few other really important things. First of all, what he's doing is actually building a foundation for our New Testament to exist. He compares Paul's letters to what he calls the other scriptures. He, he puts them on par with the Old Testament, which to us feels very normal, but to his readers would have probably been weird because they would have understood the scriptures as the Old Testament. That's the, the Bible that Jesus used, right? Jesus did not have the letters of Paul as he was walking around teaching. And so what Peter is making clear is that the apostles actually understood that what they were writing to these churches, they, they were in that process producing more of the written word of God for his people. They, they knew what they were doing. They were giving us the New Testament as they were writing. The other thing that he's setting out for us is the reality that there are correct and incorrect interpretations of scripture. So, right, he, he's thinking back to these false teachers and he's saying that they're going to take these things that are hard to understand and they're just going to twist them. And in saying this, Peter makes clear that when Paul, or for that matter, Peter or Matthew or John or any other biblical author wrote, they intended their writing to mean something. And if we don't get to that something that they wanted it to communicate, then we are getting it wrong. Right? The Bible is not just like a piece of art that can be interpreted in any way that, that the, the seer sees fit. Right? If you've ever watched like, movies where like, fancy art people are talking about paintings, they'll look at the same painting and one of them is like, well, this represents like, youthful joy. And another one goes, no, it's the, the marching on of time or whatever. But the Bible doesn't work that way. It's not subjective. It, it has objective truth. Every verse has a correct interpretation. We don't get to just choose what the Bible says. Now, a verse might have many applications, but ultimately it has one true interpretation. And our job as Christians is to put in the work to find that correct meaning in order that false teachers or even legitimate believers who are just reading a text wrong cannot get us to bend away from what the Bible truly teaches and means on the many topics that it addresses. We don't have time this morning to get into principles for faithful Bible interpretation, um, but if you're hearing this and going, man, I want to know how to do that. I really don't feel like I'm confident in interpreting rightly. I would happily give up a day of my life to sit down with you and work through that. I'm sure that's true of pretty much anyone on the staff. We would love to work with you on that. So let us know. We'd love to help you read your Bible faithfully. But in this, Peter is also offering a warning. He says, knowing this beforehand. In other words, he's saying to them, you know that the scriptures can be hard to understand. And you know that the false teachers are going to twist them because he's already told them in chapter two that that's what's going to happen. So take care not to be carried away. Be grounded in the word so that others cannot draw you away from that foundation and cause you to become unstable. And finally, in his last words of this letter, Peter writes, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. He's creating a contrast here. He's just said, don't get caught up in these false teachers twisting scripture, but instead, grow in grace and knowledge. He also, because all of the apostles were exceptional writers, he's creating bookends on his letter. At the beginning, he says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And now as he wraps it up, he brings them right back to those themes again, growing in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, I could have done my best to explain what it means to grow in grace, um, but, but there are plenty of preachers who are far better than me, and one of those is Charles Spurgeon, who might have been the best to ever do it. So uh, it's a bit of an extended quote, but I'm just going to tell you what Charles Spurgeon thinks it means to grow in grace, because he's better than I am. So he writes, There is a sense in which there is no such thing at all as growth in grace. If you understand the word grace as signifying free favor and the love of God toward his people, there is not and there cannot be any growth in that at all. But our text does not say anything about grace growing. It does not say that grace grows. It tells us to grow in grace. There's a vast difference between grace growing and our growing in grace. God's grace never increases. It is always infinite, so it cannot be more. It is always everlasting. It is always bottomless. It is always shoreless. It cannot be more, and in the nature of God, it could not be less. The text tells us to grow in grace. We are in the sea of God's grace. We cannot be in a deeper sea, but let us grow now that we are in it. We cannot be more in it than we are or than we always have been. We are in God's grace. We are in the covenant, and he's speaking of Christians. We are in the scheme of redemption. We are in union with Jesus. We cannot be more or less so, for we are eternally secure through the blood of our Savior. But while it cannot grow more, while grace cannot grow more, we can grow more in it. And so we shall grow in grace. So to summarize what Spurgeon says, Peter is not telling us to make God's grace increase, because that's impossible. He's also not telling us to get more of God's grace for ourselves because he has already lavished it all on us. But rather, now that we are living in a sea of God's grace, he is calling us to grow where we are, to strive for our lives to show more evidence that we have, in fact, experienced and cherish God's grace. Now, there's kind of a set of applications I'll almost always offer with a truth like this, right? Bible reading, prayer, reading good Christian books, fellowship and study with other believers, acts of love and service to believers and non-believers, intentional evangelism, generosity, participating in the ordinances of, of baptism, of the Lord's Supper, all good things. And as Peter has shown us earlier in Second Peter, reminders are really important. So I put all of those before you again. Those are, those are good things. I commend all of those things to you as ways to grow in grace. But one thing on my mind recently mostly I think because I've been convicted about the way that I handle this, is this reality. In a world that is busy and in lives that are full, the reality remains that how we spend our time will prove what is most valuable to us. So how we spend our time is one of the ways in which we either grow in grace or evidence that we have. And just because I, I don't want this to just be Daniel's idea, there's Ephesians 5, 15, and 16. The Apostle Paul says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. We are living in evil days. That, that has always been. Sin is continually running rampant. It has been for 2,000 years since Paul wrote this. Therefore, we ought to strive to make the best use, not simply good use, I think when he uses that word, he says, you might have to give up good things for the sake of better things. We want to make the best use of our time. And so I ask and I, I preach to myself at the same time because I freely admit that this is something I need to grow in. Does your use of time evidence that you are growing in grace or that you are desiring to grow in grace or knowledge?
There's a few ways I, I thought about that this week. Are you willing to give up some of your time consuming entertainment through social media, YouTube, Disney Plus, or TV, and instead spend time drawing closer to the Lord? Are you willing to, to wake up a bit earlier or, or go to bed a bit later in order to spend time as a family or as an individual doing devotions? And here's my confession. I, I am particularly bad at this in terms of family devotion. So fathers, husbands, I invite you to join me in trying to take seriously the role that God has called us to in spiritual leadership, that, that we would be the ones trying to draw our family nearer to the Lord, that we would be leading in Bible study, in prayer, and helping them love God better by our leadership. Given that May Long just came and went, this, this one's going to probably feel a bit more pointed than I intend it to, but it's worth asking, it's worth thinking about. Does the way that you spend your Sunday mornings clearly communicate that celebrating who God is and what he has done is incredibly important to you? Or do your Sunday mornings tell the world that extra sleep or the lake or sports are more important to you than that? I think the overarching question when we think about our use of time is this. If a non-believer were to look at our lives, would it look much different from theirs? Would our use of time evidence the fact that we have been born again by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? And look, my goal here is not to add a heavy burden to anyone. My, my goal is not to tell you how to spend every minute of your day. But what I really think we need to do, and what I want to call you to as a church, is that we must be careful not to drink the cultural Kool-Aid. We, we live in a culture that wants to entertain us to death. Just numb ourselves, doing the things that feel good, and just run with that. And we will slip into that immediately if we don't fight it. So I'm not telling you how to spend your time, but I'm telling you to think about how you spend your time. Battle against what the culture wants us to do and pursue, as Paul said, making the best use of your time. Because our time is a precious gift. And I think it's one that we take for granted most often. So take time this morning, this afternoon, this evening, reflect on this reality and ask, does my use of time evidence or spur on my growth in grace? And through all of those practices that I mentioned briefly, as well as this larger one of making a better use of our time, we ought to seek to grow in the knowledge of Christ so as to draw nearer to him and be more like him. And that brings us to the end of the book of 2 Peter. And so as we've studied this book together, we've seen the, the traits that Peter expects will define the lives of Christians and how those play a necessary role in us confirming our, our calling and election. We've seen how beautifully grounded our faith is in, in the confirmed prophetic word of the Old Testament playing out in history. We've seen the need to contend for the faith against false teachers as we cling to God's truth. We've seen the reality and sureness of Christ's second coming. And then today, we've seen how Peter ties all of that together as he concludes his letter. But as we wrap up our time, I want us to see clearly where Peter ends and I want us to go there with him. To conclude so much beautiful truth, in his last letter that we have, and, and based on some of the stuff he said in chapter one, probably one of the last letters he ever wrote as he was likely coming to the end of his life, he wants it all to end with a declaration and a call for Christ to be glorified in the church and in believers. And so as we seek to live out the truth that we have encountered in Second Peter, as we seek, I hope, to let a right faith shape a right practice in us, let's make our motivation the same. That in our obedience, in our study of the word, 
in our contending for the faith and in our looking forward to Christ's return, the goal would not be an easier life or, or a self-help religion that just makes me feel a bit better and makes the days a bit easier, that, that our goal wouldn't be us trying to make ourselves acceptable before God because I promise you, you cannot do that apart from Jesus Christ, that our goal would not be just inflating our own egos and looking better than the culture around us and, and stealing the glory that rightly belongs to Christ, but that instead that would be our goal, that Christ would get the glory, that he would be rightly worshipped, and that we as his followers would delight in all that we do, making nothing of ourselves and making much of him. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, none of us are sufficient for these things. We, we are a fallen people. We all delight in taking glory for ourselves. We all delight in, in pursuing comfort over what you have called us to. But Lord Jesus, you are worthy of all of it. You're, you are worthy of every minute of our lives. You are worthy of any sacrifice we might make. You are worthy of us being hated by the world for your sake because you are glorious. And you have done far more than we could ever even imagine to begin to repay. And so we just ask now that as we try to put into practice what your apostle Peter has given to us, that we would not be motivated by a, by a moralism that just is trying to be better, to make ourselves look better to God, but that instead our primary goal, the, the one thing that we would pursue is your glory. And as we pursue your glory in our lives and in this church and, and more unbelievers being exposed and responding to your glory, that it would be in that, in that one goal, in pursuing that, that we would live out everything that your apostle, in your word, as the Holy Spirit led him to, has called us to be and do as Christians. Lord Jesus, receive all your glory this morning in our singing, in our praying, in our receiving of the supper that you have instituted. Take it all. Lord, <laughs> we, we deserve none of it. So be glorified now as we conclude our time and draw each one of us to, to see and savor you in a fuller way today. Amen.